everybody. Hi, guys. How are you doing? You look great. You look really, What are you doing with your skin? I need all your tips. What are you doing with your skin? <laughs> Can I have it? I need it. I would love to have a skin suit of your body. That's so creepy what I just said. Um, <laughs> welcome to this week's Lost Boss Bitch. Um, so this week, I'm going to be talking about George Eliot. Ooh. Which is a twist. What? Because that's a man. <gasps> Except it's not. Um, it is the nom de plume for the um, writer Mary Ann Evans. Ooh. Um, and she also goes by Marion. So I'm going to call her both Mary Ann and Marion over the course of this because I know I wrote it in different ways throughout my document. Okay. Um, so she used a male pen name. Um, she said so her works were taken more seriously, which... Uh, in 2017, I have considered myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but her book, Middlemarch, has been described by two um, uh, modern-day novelists, Martin Amis and Julian Barnes, as the greatest novel in English language. Whoa, I've never read that novel. I haven't either, but now that I've written this, I'm going to download it on the old Kindle Fuck yeah. and give it a go. Get in it. Um, so she was born in 1819 in Warwickshire, England, so super white. Mm-hmm. And as she got older, because she wasn't that good looking, her father decided that there wasn't much of a chance for her to ever get married. So um, he decided that she should get an education instead, which is even (laughs) even as terrible as that is, was actually pretty forward thinking because a lot of the times they would either be sent to a convent or they would just become house ladies taking care of other people's homes. How lucky of her to not be considered attractive. Exactly. For fucking community though like, yeah what a blessing she got to live the life that she like she got to kind of steer her own life in, uh-huh. in some ways you'll see in other ways not so much gotcha um but she studied in a variety of schools um and got an education not often afforded to women as i just said up until the age of 16 when her mother passed away and she moved back from um she was living at, Co- at coventry and she moved back to warwickshire to um look after the family home and her father but her father had access somehow to the library at Arbury Hall, which was this giant library. And so she was able to get books there and it aided, aided in her self-education and breadth of learning. Hmm. So, you know, there are some people that are self-motivated enough to just educate themselves. It's crazy. Damn. Um, when she turned 21, her brother Isaac married and um, he took over the family home because of that. That was, you know, how it worked. He was then the head of the house. So Mary Ann and her father moved to Fools Hill near Coventry where she had uh, finished her schooling. And um, while, wearing, while wearing there, while living there, Marion was exposed to a bunch of new influences, particularly this couple named Charles and Kara Bray. Yeah. So Charles Bray had become rich um, because he was a ribbon manufacturer. Yeah, ribbon. Right? Um, and instead of just stockpiling his wealth in Caribbean islands and whatnot, he decided to build schools and um, donated to many philanthropic causes. Um, and through her friendship with them, excuse me, I'm about to burp. And then I did. Um <laughs> Through her friendship with them, her eyes were opened to a completely different world. Um, she had been struggling with her religious doubts for some time, but um, when she became friends with the people that hang out at, hung out at the Bray residence, was which was called the Rose Hill Home, um, 
she had her mind open to progressive and free thinking ways. Uh, some of the people she met there were Ralph Waldo Emerson. Don't know if you've ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard of him. And she was introduced to more liberal the- theologies and uh, writers like David Strauss and Ludwig Feierbach. Ooh. Um, who helped cast doubt on the literal truth of biblical stories, which is so interesting that that was something that was being talked about in the early 1800s, early Mm -hmm. to mid, and we're still struggling with that. So far. Yes. Her first major literary work was actually an English translation of Strauss's The Life of Jesus, um, which was published in 1846, and she Mm -hmm. completed it after somebody else that was part of the Rose Hill Circle just decided not to finish it. So she took that on, and that was kind of her first taste of the literary world. Um, so as she continued to question her religious faith, her father threatened to throw her out of the house, mm-hmm. obve, mm-hmm. Um, but he never carried it out because, spoiler alert, she took care of him. Like, you yeah. can't just throw out the person that's <laughs> no, taking care do? of you. What are you going to do? Um, but because of that threat, she continued to join him at church, mm-hmm. um, and she kept the house for him until he died when she was 30. Um, I have a feeling that she wasn't super heartbroken over her father's death. Oh, God, just an inclination. Yeah, you know, because five days after his funeral, she packed her bags and went on a trip with the Braves to Sweden. Nice. Um, She stayed there. a brief morning period. Exactly. (laughs) She was just like, okay, the house is clean. I'm going to go. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Exactly. Um, They went to Sweden and they continued on. She stayed there for a while by herself where she... um, I think had kind of an eat, pray, love moment. She Mm -hmm. was just figuring out who she was, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and what her independence meant. Um, And then her travels took her to London where she stayed at the house of John Chapman, who she had met at the Rose Hill house previously. Mm. Um, He didn't kill John Lennon, right? He did not. (laughs) (laughs) Just to clarify, he's not a time traveler who then killed John Lennon in New York City Mm -hmm. in don't know the year. 1984. Really? I didn't know it was the 80s. Damn. See, guys? I could be wrong, though. We're learning new things all the time. All the time. Um, So not that John Chapman, but this guy uh, bought a left-wing journal called the Westminster Review, and he hired her as his assistant editor. But assistant by assistant editor, he meant you do all the work. Okay, cool. And <laughs> I'm just going to reap the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. So she did. And she cut her teeth in the literary world by writing essays and reviews for that journal for many, for about five years. Um, so uh, just to clarify, women writers were actually very common at the time, but um, they wrote mostly kind of like fluffy romances and that kind of thing. Uh, and Evan's role as the female editor of a literary magazine was very unusual. Ooh. Um, so good for her. Yeah. <laughs> but just to go back to, I don't know <laughs> why I wrote this here, but um, again, she was not considered beautiful or even an attractive woman, which could have been to her detriment, but she still just worked hard. But according to a man named Henry James, he's quoted in saying, mm, you ready for Henry this description? James says. Uh, by the way, Look at yourself, Henry James. I don't know what he looks like, but I'm sure he's not that hot. Mm -hmm. This was his description of her. She had a low forehead, a dull gray eye, a vast pendulous nose, a huge mouth full of uneven teeth, and a chin and jawbone, keen yin, finis and paw. 
I don't know what that means. Now, in this vast ugliness resides a most powerful beauty, which in a very few minutes steals forth charms the mind so that you... Uh, so that you end as I ended in falling in love with her. Whoa. Yes, it's but like she's fucking Frankenstein's monster. But exactly. you know what? I dig it. She's so smart. <laughs> Man, wait, maybe it's not all about looks. <laughs> yes, behold me in love with this great, great horse-faced blue stocking. Jesus I know. Cool so he, he's like, God damn it. He's like, listen, guys, she's so ugly. I'm going to describe it in horrifying detail. But I don't know. There's something about me that's still still digs her. Yeah. But despite him being, um, people being very, uh, you know, um, brainy attracted to her, mm-hmm. um, academically attracted to her, um, she formed a number of embarrassing, unreciprocated emotional attachments mm. during this period, um, including one with Chapman, who was the guy that owned the magazine. Mm-hmm. He was married and lived with his wife and his mistress at the time. Wow. Um, yeah. So they didn't have any room for, <laughs> as as um, Henry James put it, a great horse face blue stocking. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, this is when things get kind of juicy. She met philosopher and critic George Henry Lewes. It's either Lewes or Lewis, L-E-W-E-S. It could go either way. Mm. I'm going to say Lewes. Okay. Lewis. I'm going to say Lewis. Um, he was married at the time to a woman named Agnes Jervis, but they had an open marriage mm, in the 1800s. Impressive. I know. They had three kids together, and Agnes had an additional four children with another man. Holy God, that body. I know. How? Just whipping them out. Um, but since George, who became, um, became uh, Marianne's lover mm-hmm. um, had put his name on the birth certificate for the illegitimate children. Mm-hmm. He was said to be complicit in adultery. So he was not allowed to legally divorce her. Isn't that weird? That's very odd. Very odd. But so also, like works. At, I mean, like if it's an open marriage, like did he want to divorce her? Well, what happened was eventually in 1854, he and Marianne decided to, do it up. Do it, you know, like be together. Mm-hmm. Um, and she started calling him her husband. They went to Berlin together and called it their honeymoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a big to do in their social circles because it, even though it wasn't unusual for women, men and women in um, Victorian society to have affairs, usually it was kind of hush hush and just an open secret. Mm-hmm. But they were just like, no, we're married. This is yeah. us. Wow. Um, but because he was still technically married to Agnes, it was considered uh, that they were um, practicing polygamy. So that put... They were like outlaws. Exactly. People Weird. kind of gave them a lot of shade because of it. Damn. Um, so let's get back to her writing, though, because um, we're going to talk we? about her love life okay. a little bit more okay. later. Um, but while she continued to contribute pieces to the Westminster Review, um, she decided that she was going to become a novelist and she set out a manifesto for herself in one of her last essays for the review that was called Silly Novels by a Lady Novelist. Okay. okay. Like, relax. Just, oh, yeah. Like, give yourself a little cred. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Um, Silly novels. Not by lady, lady novelist. And the essay criticized the trivial and ridiculous plots for contemporary fiction by women. And I get it. She was kind of setting out to say, this is not what I was going to do. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, hashtag women for women. Maybe know, don't exactly. cut them down so much. Exactly. That's If we ever sell a notepad or something, that should be the title. Yes. <laughs> hashtag women for women. Mm-hmm. So she, that's when she adopted her pen name in 1857 when she was 37. And she wrote her first short stories 
story that was published that was called The Sad Fortunes of the Reverend Amos Barton. It was published in the Blackwoods Magazine, became a big hit. It was well-received. And she followed it up shortly after with her first complete novel called Adam B.D. And that became a smash hit of Mm. the time. Because it was such a hit, um, people were trying to figure out who uh, George Eliot was. And uh, she even had a guy named Joseph Liggins that tried to say that it was him. And Joseph, step back. Yeah, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Wasn't you. Mm-mm. So eventually she stepped forward. Um, and in doing so, people realized what her private life was, which was all that polygamy nonsense. Mm-hmm. And so you would think that would have tanked her career. But even though people were like, oh, clutch my pearls. I can't believe how scandalous it is. It didn't hurt her popularity at all. Yeah. Um, she continued to write popular novels for the next 15 years. Um, her last novel was called Daniel Deronda and that was published in 1876. So, wow. It's a pretty long, great career. Yeah. Um, after that was published, she married or she moved with Lewis to Whitley, Surrey and his health was failing and he died two years later on the 30th of November, 1878. Yeah. So, um, after that, she spent the next two years editing his last work which was called Life and Mind for Publication. And she found solace in the companionship of John Walter Cross. Mm-hmm. Okay, so enter John Walter Cross. Mm-hmm. There's not to be much known about him, but it was a little controversial because they got married. He was 20 years her junior. Yeah, baby. And while the, <laughs> the couple was honeymooning in Venice, mm-hmm. uh, Cross, in a fit of depression, that's, that's the only explanation for this, they're on their honeymoon. He jumped from the hotel balcony into <gasps> the Grand Canal. What? Yeah. I don't know. I, it just says he was depressed. Who so it's a fit of depression on their honeymoon? I don't too? know. Maybe they were in a fight and he was just like, you know what? I'm not going to do this. So he decided to kill himself. I'm not going to do any of this. No, I'm done yeah. with everything. Well, he did survive and okay. they returned to England. Um, they moved into like a shit face or something. He like must maybe? have been. He's like, no, no, look what I can do. Like, yeah, yeah. Watch this. this. Hey, no, hey. Cool as hell. Yeah. <laughs> babe, 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 look. <laughs> I told you, do not jump off that. But no, babe, look, I got, no, no, I got no, no. this. No, it's so good. Really it's good. Cool. It's going to be cool. Yeah. It's going to be cool. Can you get a daguerreotype of this made? <laughs> Please. Um, so he jumped, he lived, they moved back to Chelsea, um, but she fell ill shortly thereafter with a throat infection. Things that could kill you in the 1800s. Oh man. Um, that coupled with a kidney disease that she had been afflicted with for several years. Oh God, it would suck to be alive then. Yeah. I mean, now it's, it's like not the best. Anything could kill you, anything could kill your kids. Totally. You live, it's like every day. You're going to die. Like, okay, lady human. Yeah. You're a lady human. Hey, little lady human. I know. Um, so blah, 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 blah. She died, um, December 22nd, 1880 at the age of 61, which is actually not, not, you know, too young. No, that's a good long, I mean, she like lived the shit out of that life. She did. And she lived it. She, she did what made her happy aside from, you know, doing what her dad said there for a minute. Um, she was not allowed to be buried in Westminster Abbey because of her denial of the Christian faith. You mm-hmm. go, girl. Mm-hmm. And her irregular, though monogamous, life with Lewis. <laughs> so she was built. She was uh, buried in Highgate Cemetery. I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's in the area for reserved for li- religious dissenters and agnostics. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. That's where I want to be. But she was beside the love of her life, Aww. George Lewis. So good That's for nice. her. Yeah. What a- 
what a fucking life. Also, I this has been eating away at me since you said that. It's I think it's Mark David Chapman that murdered John uh, Lennon. Listen, I hear Chapman last, and I'm like John Lennon, John, John Lennon, Lennon, John Lennon, John Lennon. Listen, I, I know you guys were like you were right. It is Mark David Chapman, but um, so now you know we don't have to field all those emails. <laughs> all those many, many do emails. Mm-hmm. I love that though. I I, I do. I want to read Mill March now. I do too. Is I'm gonna that, put it on the list. What's another like? We can she, put up. I mean, she wrote a ton of shit. She did. So. Um, she wrote for 15 years very steadily. So we'll put up uh, maybe a list mm-hmm. of. Um, we should do a boss bitch reading list. Ooh, we That'd should. Be yeah. yeah. That'd be really fun. That'd be really fun. Know, we're gonna have a wine list. We're gonna have all these lists. So many lists. It's like Buzzfeed. Yeah, we're gonna be yeah. our own Buzzfeed guys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. 15 novels written by boss bitches, even right. if it is under a male nom de plume. Yeah, we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. Um, actually, my lady uh, is not far off from yours, and in time period, and in Ooh, uh, it's fun when that happens. Yeah, it's very fun. Um, mine is poet Phyllis Wheatley. Ooh. Um, the uh, she I learned about her first in high school because she was the one black woman who was in the um, anthology of American writing that we really? had in our, like AP English class. Yeah, I was just like, and now looking back, I'm like, fuck you, come on, guys, <laughs> try a little harder. Exactly, and she was like the first person we read about, but her poems were so beautiful, and we'll put some shit up or whatever. But anyway, um, a pioneering African-American poet, Phyllis Wheatley was born in Senegal around 1753. We don't know because like she wasn't treated uh, like a human. Uh-huh. It was the age of eight. She was kidnapped and brought to Boston on a slave ship. No. I know. Upon her arrival, John Wheatley purchased her as a servant for his wife, Susanna, um, which started kind of like this relationship, which was actually like pretty okay as far as like a life in slavery would go. Um Anyway, we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, Under the family's direction, Wheatley, uh, who adopted her master's last name, uh, was taken under Susanna's wing, and she suffered poor health being in America, but but Susanna recognized how intelligent she was, um, and as a result, uh, she just was like, actually, she's not going to be my servant at all. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So they just put her into school. Um, She received lessons in theology, English, Latin, and Greek. Ancient history was soon uh, folded in, mythology, literature. So she was still like a slave, but, but she they was put just her like, in school. Just essentially, just like adopted by the family. I um, mean, that's, uh, it's, again, again slavery is terrible. Probably very confusing for and her. And she as a did young get girl. taken away from her family, <laughs> yeah. her actual family. A lot of shit. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Um, but Listen, it, but it's like the blind side, but with slavery. <laughs> just like, it could be much more uncomfortable for her. And so that is great because she was very, uh, very talented writer. Um, so at that time, again, African-Americans were very discouraged and to learn how to read and write. It was not to be done. Um, so her life was a total anomaly, um, especially amongst uh, her, like in the community. Like people were like, like outraged and confused by it, mm-hmm. whatever. They just like went with it. Um, then Wheatley wrote her first published poem at age 12. Oh my God. Uh, which is a story about two uh, men who drown at sea, almost drown at sea. Um, and it was printed in the Newport Mercury. I hope, I, I tried to find this poem. I couldn't. I hope that they were white men. That'd be fun. Um, but I It is say. interesting too, if they knew that she was, you know, a young black girl. Mm-hmm. Publishing her is an interesting move and yeah. pretty cool. And she never had a pen name or everyone knew she was black, like, which was interesting. Also, uh, 
dichotomy between your uh, lost boss bitch and mine, she Wheatley was more of just like a curiosity to like she was just more like ooh like at first, mm-hmm. um, but then her work was really recognized as being really good. Um, but it's interesting too, like again, like working under a pseudonym versus not at all and how right. your career takes a different trajectory because hers does. Um, so she published a bunch of other poems. Uh, uh, so she got kind of famous again and she was only like 12, 13, 14. Um, in 1773, she gained considerable stature when her uh, first and only book of poems, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, was published. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, it was financed partially by the people who owned her. Um, as proof of her authorship, the volume included a preface in which 17 Boston men claimed that she had indeed written the poems inside. Oh, my God. Well, 17 God. Boston men. Thank agree. God. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> legit. These fucking dudes give it. They said that she's a legitimate yeah. person, even yeah. though she's still technically <laughs> owned by people. Exactly. God. Um, so it, the poems on various subjects is her huge achievement. She was very young. Um it, in publishing it, Wheatley became the first African-American, first U.S. slave to publish a book of poems, as well as the third American woman to do that. Um, and so it was a huge deal. Again, kind of a curiosity, though, too. People didn't take it super seriously. Um, following the publication of her book, she went to London to promote her poems and received a, a medical treatment for her health. She's, she's always kind of battled bad health. Mm-hmm. Um, after her return to Boston, Wheatley's life changed significantly. Um, she was freed, ultimately, um, but, uh, in the next, uh, in 1774, Susanna died and then John died in 1778. Oh, no. So it was like, you're free. Great. Here you go. Also these figures that have been such a, a paramount part of your life died. They're gone. Mm-hmm. So she was like, okay. So in 1778, Wheatley married a free African-American from Boston named John Peters. Uh, she had three children and all of them died in infancy. No, I know. Um, the marriage was a struggle. The couple was always broke. Um, her health stuff was always a problem. Um, and so ultimately like she found work as a maid in a boarding house. That sucks. I know. It kind of reminds me of the last boss bitch she did last season where it was the, the woman who, uh, was the first director. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just like, holy shit. Like these highs are so high. And then then the lows. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And she still doesn't get credit for being such a pioneer. God. Um, so Wheatley continued to write, um, but with the growing tensions with the British and the Revolutionary War, like people didn't care as much. It, she wasn't such like... She wasn't a novelty act anymore. Exactly. It's just like, she's like, I'm an artist. And they're like, mm, we don't care. Um, so she contacted lots of publishers about it, but she was unsuccessful in finding support for a second volume of poetry. Um, but uh, she did write a bunch of poems on America's fight for independence. Um, she wrote a bunch of poems on George Washington, which are still very famous and taught in schools. Um, nobody knows that Washington never read her work, but uh, <laughs> we can hope because, we can hope. Uh, again, her poems are really gorgeous and uh, she's had a very tough life and she died in Boston on December 5th, 1784. And she doesn't mm. have any kids that no. survived, right? So no, that's the end of the road. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, she was young, 30, 30, 1753. Don't make me do math. 29. Fuck. God damn. What a bummer. 
Sorry to leave this on a downer. Listen, it's all kind of downers because um, it's a dark. I'm sorry, 31. No. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Is Mark that, David Chapman. <laughs> uh, we don't have the field emails. And it's Alice Guy Blush. Blush. Oh. That was the first female oh. director. Um, yeah. I. That's a bummer. That's kind of a downer. Yeah. Um, but she is in history. But I mean, she's like, she's not. In in a in a school, especially I went to public school, so even in the Midwest, in the Midwest, so even reading a poem was a was not an everyday occurrence, much less like a a black woman right. poet. Absolutely. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. It, uh, yeah, it's such a it's such a complicated subject because she wouldn't have had such a tough life potentially if she hadn't been moved from her homeland Mm -hmm. but then it was lucky that she had owners which i know it's so that supported her i don't know it's yeah it's very complicated it's it is it's like that nancy myers movie right no it's not (laughs) yeah it's like the ups and downs and yeah she may have not been successful had she not been promoted as like being a, a black woman poet mm-hmm. or being patronized by her owners. Um, but again, it's like maybe she would have had an easier life had she, you know, not been not done that or torn away. Educated yeah. Or yeah. Whatever. All, all of these things. Sliding <sighs> doors. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. Absolutely. I was also taught in public schools and she was not a poet that I learned. Yeah. Um, sad. Yeah. Well, um, geez. Well, well uh, Christmas re- is coming up, I think, <laughs> if I know the timeline correctly. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And this we actually have a pretty inspiring boss bitch next week, uh, Linda Morrell. She, yes, she's amazing. She's a Emmy Award winning producer mm-hmm. um, who has a lot of cool stories. It was a pleasure sitting down mm-hmm. with her. And very inspiring. Very too. inspiring. So, uh, we got we got lows here at Boss Bitch, but we but got we also highs. have highs. We got some highs. Yeah. <laughs> so stick around for that, and then we will be back um, in the new year. Yeah. With another Lost Boss Bitch. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.